Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Paul Monasterio, CEO and co-founder of Kalepa, an insurance underwriting platform that's raised $16 million in funding. Paul, thanks for having me today. Great talking to you, Brett. So to kick things off, can we start with just a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. So, you know, prior to founding Kalepa, I've been in a number of different, wore a number of different hats throughout my life. Uh, I'm originally from Venezuela, came to the States for, for college, and I started my career as a scientist. And I was a I was a nuclear physicist, of all things, uh, back in the day. I uh, did some work on a number of uh, areas, worked at Livermore Labs, worked in the East Coast, and then uh, shifted gears about 15 years ago and joined a company called APT. APT stands for Applied Predictive Technologies, which is what happens when you let an MIT person name a company. And it really was a, an older breed of what it's now, you know, invoke AI companies, right? So it's basically... The earlier wave of big data analytics, predictive analytics, but really applying the scientific method, experimentation to cases where it couldn't have been done before, you know, particularly problems around business that affect, you know, retail locations and sales forces and other type of what I'll call more material entities than the typical A-B testing that one conducts online. So I spent a number of years there. That was a very formative period of my career. Did a lot of work in the U.S., in Asia. And then uh, APT was acquired by MasterCard in 2015. I worked for a period of time at MasterCard, leading their technology and global technology practice using MasterCard's data and solutions to kind of make better decisions. Then uh, went to Facebook for a bit, worked there for some time in their advertising business, and then found the Calipa about five years ago, and it's been a terrific journey since. One thing I want to zoom in on there is, you know, your time and coming from Venezuela. What was that like for you growing up in Venezuela? And what was that like for you when you came to the U.S. for the first time? You know, it's interesting. So there are two components we just ask, right? In Venezuela, I think for folks who, who have read the news of the region, have gone through a rough couple decades. So I was born, you know, I was born in 85. And, you know, the 70s was probably Venezuela's heyday when, you know, the oil shocks made the country somewhat absurdly rich over a short period of time. And that, I think, probably uh, that, that infusion of cash quickly probably led to some of the weakening of the institutions. And certainly the last two and a half decades have been difficult. Right? A lot of people have emigrated. As well. I emigrated prior to that. My family is still in Venezuela, but I came to the U.S. for college. Like many people do, you know, I wanted to improve my education and went to Berkeley for undergrad. You know, they decided to accept me and had a tremendous time there. That was not my first time in the U.S. I had been to the U.S. before, but I never been to California and certainly I've never been to a place like Berkeley. So that was pretty interesting. It was actually my first time, you know, on the West Coast. And I mean, I loved it. I fell in love with certainly the university, but certainly with, with the U.S., right? And, you know, now it's been 20 plus years later and uh, I'm an American citizen now. And, and, you know, it's been a great ride. Have you ever watched the documentary? And I guess you probably lived it, so maybe you didn't have to watch it, but The Revolution Will Not Be Televised? I have watched a documentary, and I would say I've lived it in the sense that as a Venezuelan, it's been a core part of my, you know, me growing up and seeing the country change in somewhat unfortunate ways. With all that said, though, I think, you know, different people in the country 
have been affected in different ways. It's only back then when that documentary came out, Caracas, where I'm from, kind of politically tends to be also, you know, where folks try to make things better relative to a country, because I guess the people from Caracas are the ones that can probably cause more problems, if you will. So that insulated a little bit of the worst thing that happened elsewhere in the country. And then two, you know, I think all in all, like my family, while not being, you know, well off, certainly was not, you know, struggling. And certainly I know many of my friends were, and that was much tougher than it was for me. And a few other questions we'd like to ask. And the goal here is to really just better understand what makes you tick. First one, what CEO and founder do you admire the most? And what do you admire about them? Yeah, you know, it's actually interesting because it somewhat connects to the question you asked me. And I've never put those two together because no one asked me those two questions next to each other. Uh, there are a lot of folks, obviously, that, that, that I admire for many reasons, right? For their intellect, for the kind of vision they've had, for how they've changed the category. One thing I really value is hustle, right? And just the proverbial figuring out how to pierce through obstacles and having that uh, indefatigable will. There are two founders from two very different areas who I really respect on that regard. You know, one actually is someone that I'm not sure if a lot of people are familiar with. This guy called Haim Saban. Have you heard of him? No, I haven't. So Haim Saban is the founder of Saban Entertainment. And the biggest claim of fame for Haim Saban was the Power Rangers in the U.S., so that's the guy behind bringing the Power Rangers, the franchise, from Japan to the U.S. back, you know, in the 80s or so. And Haim was born in Egypt. He was dirt poor. And his family moved to uh, somewhere in Israel. I believe it was Tel Aviv, you know, give or take 70 years ago. So Haim is probably almost 90 now. And he was shining shoes in Israel. And, you know, he's a completely self-made man, right? The guy purely on the basis of strong will, hustle, creativity, ingenuity, resourcefulness, has built a media empire. The story that I really absolutely love from him was with the Power Rangers. And when he bought the rights to the Power Rangers in Japan, one thing that is interesting, and, you know, the Power Rangers kind of like franchise in different countries and the like, is because the Power Rangers are clothed head to toe most of the time, he only had to reduce some scenes with American actors, while most of the scenes where the Power Rangers are in costume, you could reuse ones from Japan as is and just dub them, right? Like that's that's the kind of story that I just love. It's someone that basically figures it out one way or another. So I love I love his story and I love what he's built. Another similar one is uh, Sarah Blakely from Spanx. And it's the same, right? You know, I see that as the same kind of principle. You know, Sarah is almost a problem. And no one was solving and realized that really there was no one stopping her from solving it if she just put her head down and, and you know, going from selling fax machines door to door to building a, an empire in fashion, in attire is insane. And I frankly respect the type of founders that just do that, right? That ultimately turn, you know, the proverbial lead into gold by, of course, luck. You know, everyone has luck out there, but but really mainly just by pure cheer for the will. Uh, so those two are high on my book. You know, I think there are many current kind of folks, you know, in the trenches that have that same personality and style. And I find myself drawn to those kind of people. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Sarah. I, I follow her husband a lot, Jesse Kitzler. So I kind of indirectly have learned a lot about Sarah from that. And I could be wrong here, but wasn't she the youngest ever self-made female billionaire, I believe? I think that's right. Yeah, I believe that's the case. 
Yeah, her uh, her story is wild. I think there was some crazy story where like, she first got her product into Nordstrom's and she like went and got all of her friends to go buy it from Nordstrom's and paid them back so that it would show sales and show traction. So Nordstrom would roll it out. Some crazy story like that, which really shows like the amount of hustle it takes to get things off the ground in the early days. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. She's terrific. I don't know her personally, but every time I learn something new about Sarah, exactly what you mentioned, right? It just really exemplifies what it means to hustle, to be creative, to be resourceful. Totally agreed. Now, what about books? And the way we like to frame this is we call it a, a quake book. So a quake book is a book that like rocks you to your core. You know, it like changes how you think about the world and how you view the world and, and really impacts what drives you day to day. Do any quake books come to mind for you? Yeah, I do. You know, I think there are many books that will change me, but I think there are two specific books that I come back too often when I get asked this question. And I have for actually, interestingly enough, for a while, because these books, I think, are, are fairly timeless and made sense to me before I even got into business. I was doing things that were completely different, frankly, from what I do now. And they have nothing to do with either science or business. One book that I made me look at the world differently was Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. So I mean, the book, Jared Diamond is a, is a geographer, is an academic that writes about anthropological things that are anthropological change in, you know, historical timeframes that are driven by geography, right? You know, I think a big part of his theory of how the world works is many things that appear to be a result of, that appear unexplainable, can be explained by just, you know, where did something happen to occur geographically? And this book, Gun, Germs, and Steel, has, has a number of holes, right? Like, you know, basically the book is not watertight. And I don't think any ambitious book is. But I do like the ambition, right? The book's premise is we're going to explain pretty much most of history based on, you know, this type of crops grew in this part of the world and this type of domesticated animals were found here. And because of that, you can see differences in income today. And while that is not entirely that linear, that simple, I love to see a book that takes itself seriously, rigorously, and tackling what, in my opinion, is the most ambitious question of all, which is why are things the way they are now? So that's one book I, I love, and, and I reread it periodically because it brings me some level of perspective. A second book that is kind of completely unrelated is a novel, and it's a novel from the, it's probably about 100 years ago, it's from the early 1920s, by a Norwegian writer called Newt Hansen. It's called Growth of the Soil. And this book is really pretty much, you know, 500 pages of beautiful prose about the Norwegian countryside in the early 20th century. We're like, what the heck does that do for you? I like how, in many ways, that book made me appreciate the simpler things in life. You know, I feel like what I've done my whole career, my whole life has been kind of dive into the deep end on a number of things that are what I'll call complex. And that brings me a lot of joy. But I like to, you know, at some point you just got to pause and, and look at the fact that, hey, you know, there's a beautiful world out there. And that book does that. Right. You know, it's someone through, again, hard work, building something out of nowhere in a forest in the middle of nowhere and a book talking about that and the generations that came out of that family. So, you know, I think those two have been books that, that I reread periodically that, frankly, don't have anything to do with what I do now. But I think fundamentally have a lot to do with the kind of personal and the way I look at it. 
That's super fascinating. And both those sound like super interesting books. As we were talking, I looked it up on Amazon and, and I added it to cart, but I saw one of the endorsements there. So strong endorsement coming from you, Paul, but also a pretty strong one coming from Bill Gates. He said, fascinating, lays the foundation for understanding human history. So that sounds like a really compelling read. I'll, uh, I'll check that first one out and then I'll dive into the second one from there. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Let's switch gears now. Let's talk about the company a bit. So can you just paint a picture for us at a high level of, of what the company does? Sure. So Caleb, uh, we are in the business of helping insurance underwriters do their jobs better, right? And the job of an insurance underwriter is interesting, right? You know, everybody, every business in the world needs insurance because bad things happen. And the process of getting insurance is let's call it not perfect, right? You know, a business seeking insurance because they want to transfer the risk to another party. And ultimately, an insurance company and an underwriter of that company is trying to assess, well, what is the risk? What things could go right and what things could go wrong. And, right? That process of underwriting, because of its nature, is very complex. It's time-consuming. It's prone with difficulties. So what we do as a company is we have built a platform, software platform, that helps the underwriters and what we call bind with confidence. Binding is the term, right? When you issue a policy and it binds, right? And that takes really two core components. The first one is helping the underwriter understand what opportunities are most suitable for them. Like, you know, some type of insurance companies are better suited to write certain type of businesses. Some underwriters prefer to write certain type of businesses. So not all opportunities that come in their direction are created equal. So we help them, you know, we use visual intelligence, we use machine learning to really recommend to them what is the best opportunity based on a lot of information that we know about it. And then the second piece is helping them understand the business, right? What is it that they do? What are the exposures, the things that could go wrong, the outsized risk and controls, the things that this business owner is doing well to control, to mitigate that so they can get to the right decision. And, you know, what goes behind the scenes there is there's a lot of data out there that we can take advantage of to make those two decisions better, but you need to do it in the right way to help the underwriters do their job better. And ultimately, our platform, which is called Copilot, is that. You know, it is exactly, now obviously with the Gen AI, everyone and, and their mother has a Copilot, but, but our Copilot has been around for a number of years doing exactly that, helping those underwriters who are the pilots make the best possible decisions they can, do their job the best possible way they can. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And take us back to 2018 when you were first starting the company. What were those early conversations like? And, and how did you discover this problem? Because it doesn't sound like you come from this you know, long background where you were grinding away as an insurance underwriter yourself, saw the problem. Where did your discovery of the problem come from? Yeah, absolutely. You're right that, that I'm not an underwriter by, by training. Um, I don't claim to be one. Though sometimes I play one on TV. But the origin of learning, understanding, and falling in love with that problem comes from my stint at APT. So my co-founder and I both worked there and we joined early and we were building together the insurance practice. My co-founder from kind of what was at that point the sales side. And then I had more of a data science operations hat. So we work with a lot of financial services companies, turning banking elsewhere, but we also work with a lot of the largest carriers, insurance carriers in the world, US, UK, and in Australia, et cetera. So we really started understanding 
the pain points in the industry, not as insiders, but as advisors, right? And seeing how we can use technology to help, you know, we were working on planes, we were working on distribution, but came coming back to underwriting because at the end of the day, the business of insurance is a business of understanding and, and pricing risk. So that was my exposure to it. But the more I learned about the problem, the more I realized that it is in the class of problems that I'm naturally drawn towards, despite what might see the dissimilitudes between them. Right? You know, I'm a scientist by trade. And insurance is, you know, the one industry that was taking data seriously hundreds of years prior to calculators. Right? You know, you think through the origins of insurance was when there were all the the boats coming from Europe to the Americas and to, you know, Asia for a variety of reasons. The folks in Lloyd's in London, you know, back in centuries ago, had to figure out a way to mitigate the risk of whether those expeditions uh, would make it through or there would be any type of catastrophic calamity. And that's one of the origins of insurance, right? Those folks were telling information about losses and about frequency of different types of outcomes by hand on pieces of paper hundreds of years ago. And really, a lot of folks claim actuaries, which is obviously what that profession became, one of the first data scientists. So, so the nature of using data seriously for a problem that you know has a lot of complexity, to me, is very analogous to the type of problems that one sees in physics that I've seen and that I've seen you know, in data science and in intelligence uh, when we were at APT. So, so that transition intellectually was one that, that was very appealing to me. And frankly, I'm not unique to it. I mean, it's interesting when you look at a lot of the profiles of folks in InsurTech now, a lot of folks do come with that strong industry background and they bring something obviously very unique. But you do see a lot of people that come from an intelligence background, especially a lot of people coming from the Israeli intelligence. And a lot of folks that come from a scientific background, right? They come from physics, they come from engineering, they come from mathematics. And I think they are drawn to the same complexity and yet trying to impact something that's very simple, which is can we help the business owner you know, be taken care of when things go sideways. You know, one of my favorite books is a book called The Outsiders. And I first heard about it from Bill Ackman. And it tells the story of, I think, eight different CEOs who were, you know, industry outsiders who came in and have been very successful. And, and Bill Ackman was talking about how he looks for CEOs like that to back because that outside perspective can be very valuable. So it sounds like that's where you're coming in from, right? You're coming in with fresh eyes. You're not tied down to like, the way things were, you're able to really think in a totally fresh and unique way, which I'm sure has had a huge impact on the company. That's right. That's right. You know, I think I think I benefit from being an outsider in the sense that, you know, seeing the application of artificial intelligence, of data science, of technology at large across industries in proactive ways. And I bring some of that to the industry. However, we do that with a perspective of a tremendous amount of humility as well, because as outsiders, we also know there are many things that the industry has been doing right for a long time, right? You know, the reality is that you don't build 100-year-old companies that, you know, have stood the test of time if you don't know what you're doing. And so we do combine that view of outsiders and tech focus and, and really understanding what you can do versus what it's being done now, but with a lot of humility for the hard work that the underwriters and the insurance companies are doing day to day. And just to tie this into some recent news, so I, I think it was yesterday that I saw in a, a newsletter I followed that Farmers insurance was pulling out of all like home and auto insurance in the state of Florida uh, due to weather risk. Yeah. So is something like you know your platform or you know something similar or the underwriting department would 
run numbers and say, all right, we've done the calculations like Florida, no good anymore. We're, we're out on Florida. Is that what would be happening behind the scenes? Well, so generally speaking, I mean, that, that kind of decision at the macro level of cutting a product is, is not taken lightly by a carrier. You know, strongly they're doing so being informed by solutions like, like Aleppa, but certainly there's a more nuanced perspective, right? When you have the capability at hand, it's not just saying, Can't, let's just get out of Florida. And uh, that's a very stroke, I would say, fairly coarse decision. You could say, well, can we write Florida profitably by understanding which risks need more coverage, which risks need less, where I can price, where I cannot price. And generally speaking, our clients are in that direction, right? It's not just the, let's take a, you know, a blunt instrument, but can we be very intelligent while making strong individual decisions that move the portfolio, that move the book in the direction of profitability for the insurance carrier, but also ultimately providing the coverage needed by your customers. There, of course, is one big component in insurance that is critical, which is insurance obviously is very regulated, right? So when you tell me about, you know, homeowners insurance in Florida, and we're very focused on the commercial lens, which is insurance for businesses as opposed to for individuals. But when you think of homeowners insurance in Florida, Obviously, a, a core challenge there is is regulation, right? There's regulation for a reason because a lot of Florida without regulation probably would be uninsurable for hurricanes, right? And obviously, that's not getting any easier with some of the changes we, we were seeing these days. The flip side of that, though, is that then you get some of these situations where if the regulators and the industry are not really on the same page and the policyholders, then, you know, some of the players just simply say, I give up. I cannot touch this market anymore and make any money from it. But our clients are trying to take a much more nuanced approach that our technology enables them to. And let's switch gears here a little bit. Let's talk about growth. Are there any numbers or metrics that you can share that demonstrate some of the growth and traction you're seeing in the market today? Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think, you know, we're seeing strong adoption in the marketplace. There are a number of indicators that we track, but there are two in particular. Of course, one is how many customers are serving, and we have more than doubled that in the last six months. So I'm really excited for that. This year has been good for our business, and there's been two driving forces. One, we have no control over, which is exactly what you mentioned. We're seeing a lot of hardening in the market. We're seeing that it's more difficult to write insurance. That increases demand for solutions like Copilot, which is how can you do it right? And because of that, we've seen a significant tailwind over the last six months as rates are increasing and then folks are pulling from the market. So that flight to quality is critical. The second one is, you know, the, the, the product has gotten to a point where, you know, and not just the product, technology that we're able to utilize all these advances in large language models, uh, we're very well positioned to utilize to accelerate the type of value that we can create. And that has enabled us to, you know, grow our client count. The other thing we look at, and really it's kind of our, our metric of market share, you know, a lot of people don't realize how, insurance, how big insurance is. Insurance is 8% of GDP. Commercial insurance, world GDP. Commercial insurance alone is a trillion dollars in revenue per year globally. So when we take that as, as the size of the pie, right now our clients are using Copilot to write a couple billion dollars of premium. So a couple billion dollars sounds like a really big number, but when you put it, you know, you divide by a trillion is, you know, we're a thousand of the way where we want to go. If we want to ensure that every single transaction out there is being underwritten perfectly, you know, taking all this information into account, making the right decision for the policyholder and for the insurance carrier, uh, we still have ways to go, but I'm happy where we are and the traction that we've gotten over the last couple of years. 
from marketing and sales perspective, what are you doing and, and what have you gotten right to you know, rise above all that noise? Because I have to imagine that, you know, obviously you're not the first founder to say, hey, you know, there's this massive mega opportunity here where we can make a bunch of money. So I'm guessing there's some competition. What are you doing marketing-wise and sales-wise to rise above all that noise? Yeah, 100%. You know, I, oftentimes when I talk to, uh, to new hires, after we extend them an offer, I have a conversation with a single person that we extend an offer to. And, and I talk to them, I start with that. I start, it's a massive market. You know, this problem is a hard problem. It's not, it hasn't been solved not because of lack of trying. It hasn't been solved because it's hard. So how do we, how do we succeed when others have not? And I think there are two, two core things. You know, the first one is there's a ton of hype. Anything touched by AI today is full of hype. And frankly, you know, a lot of a lot of stuff that I see out there, it seems as if, you know, ChatGPT has been writing the announcements as opposed to actual real powerful dialogue of how we can leverage this technology to add real value. So one core component that we're doing both commercially from a go-to-market and a product standpoint is that is we need to make sure that we tie exactly what we're doing with these models to real deliverables and change decisions and change measurable decisions that ultimately drive a business metric. That is hard because it requires a lot of work on explainability. It requires a lot of work in enabling the user to intelligently provide feedback to the model so the model gets better and you have that reinforcement loop that is transparent, that is clear and making both the human and the machine better. So that's a design challenge in addition to a technology challenge. But we spent a lot of effort there and speaking in those terms. And that has resonated with our users and, and certainly with the leaders in the insurance industry that have been burning the past. Right? They have been burning the past. They've been sold promises of you know the latest technology that will transform everything. And ultimately, it doesn't. The second one, from a marketing standpoint, you know, it's interesting. You know, for for us historically, we have really focused on demonstrating value quickly. And many solutions in insurance take a lot of time to implement. Right? You need to kind of get in the trenches, do some six month that becomes three year implementation, and then you see value. And we made a concerted effort this year to say, what is the minimum unit of value we can demonstrate for a client? So these days, for example, when we do a demo for a client, we ask them, can just send us a submission? Send us a risk that just came to your desk. Let's just do it on that, right? And there's a, there's a wild moment when they can basically see, okay, this is not smoke and mirrors. This actually works and works for me. I've been in conversations where, you know, they pick up the phone and say, uh, you need to make a different decision of this immediately. And you can imagine how, what that does for our traction. Similarly, we're starting to work with smaller players that start like that. Start, you know, as you go, crawl before you walk, before you run. And our ability to do that quickly, to deliver value in an hour, in a day, in an afternoon, in not six months, has been helpful from a go-to-market standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, of course, and ultimately from a revenue standpoint. Now, based on your journey, let's just pretend that you were starting the company over again from scratch. What would be the number one piece of advice you'd give to yourself? You know, there's one piece of advice that I did not receive. I will give to myself and I got lucky because it worked out well. You know how Y Combinator makes a really big deal of, you know, not doing solo founders and probably people to get a co-founder. And, you know, in the outside looking in, before I became a founder myself, I, I never made much of that. I think they have seen, hey, you know, we find that teams with more than one founder are more successful. As a founder, I cannot emphasize that point enough. I mean, it's been, founding company has a lot of ups and downs. And the solo journey will be tough. I'm really glad of the co-founder that I, you know, I've embarked on this journey with. And frankly, the team we have in place. So, so that's one that 
for those who, you know, there's been many, many successful solo founders, but frankly, I highly recommend bring someone else on the journey with you. That's going to be a big deal and be help when they're going to get stuff. I mean, the second one there is really think very carefully in the early days who your early customers are and who your early investors are. You know, a lot of people obviously focus on the early team members because they define the culture of the company. And that's 100% true. And there's a lot of material out there on how to think about that intelligently. But I oftentimes find that people don't think that carefully about their first customers. And it makes sense because getting their first customers is really, really hard. So you kind of just figure it out and, you know, you go through a random walk. But I think it is critical that those early customers share your vision. They're always they can't bet on you. But it is critical that, you know, they can be helpful in setting up that strong foundation, well thought out, that can help you, you know, in a longer time scale. We, again, got lucky there, but I do tell a lot of founders that I talk to that getting that first customer right um, is very, very important in actually, you know, getting to where they need to be. Final question here for you before we wrap. Let's zoom out three to five years from today. Can you paint a picture for us? What is that vision that you're building? You know, ultimately, we find that this industry is massively important, right? Insurance, when insurance works well, it is an engine of innovation, right? If people don't feel comfortable with taking risk because they don't know who's going to take care of them when things go sideways, they just don't, right? So we think that when insurance works well, insurance serves a massive societal purpose. You know, a much more poetic friend than me said, insurance is the umbrella that lets you dance under the rain. And I believe that's very true. So what gets me up in the morning and what I'm excited that we're able to achieve now and will in the next couple of years is doing that. You know, there's that trillion dollars of insurance out there for businesses all over the world that need that insurance and that is difficult for them to secure it and for the carriers to provide in a way that is efficient and profitable. And we want to be the platform that enables the transformation of the insurance industry where, you know, five years from now, we have half, two thirds of that trillion dollar pie running through Calepa, through Copilot, and those decisions delivering massive value to the carriers and to the insurers, the businesses that are writing, that are seeking that insurance, because we believe that that's going to move society forward. I love the vision. All right, Paul, we are up on time, so we'll have to wrap here. Before we wrap up, if any founder listening in wants to follow along with your journey as you build and execute on this vision, where should they go? You know, first of all, our website. Kalepa.com. I mean, certainly that is our home base. And, you know, we pretty much are on every social platform out there. You know, I'm personally, of course, on Twitter, E-M-O-N-A-S-T, P-M-O-N-A-S-T. I think that was uh, the, the number of characters I got back when I created my handle. And then, you know, Kalepa Insurance pretty much everywhere on Twitter, Facebook, Threads now, as well as uh, LinkedIn. Amazing. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to chat, talk about what you're building and share some of these valuable lessons that you've learned along the way so far. Really appreciate it and wish you best of luck in executing on this vision. Absolutely. Great talking to you, Brad, and hope you have a terrific weekend. All right. Keep it Dutch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 